Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after the four main party leaders duked it out on Monday night's debate, how are Ontario voters feeling? We'll talk about that. Prince Charles and Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, arrived in St. John's yesterday to begin their three-day Canadian tour that apparently is going to focus on reconciliation with Indigenous people. Does it really mean anything? And the pandemic housing boom seems to be winding down. Lou Piriano is the president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington. He'll join us to talk about that. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about the Ontario election. Uh, we're just a c- couple of weeks away from this. Uh, June 2nd, of course, is voting day. But the advance polls are opening uh, this week. As a matter of fact, you should check uh, in your local area to find out exactly if you want to vote uh, in advance polls, uh, how you can do that. But uh, as you know, we had the leaders debate on Monday. And, uh, well, it uh, was a little crazy. But uh, And I know people say, I don't go bother watch that stuff. But we do, because we want to find out just what the candidates are all about. Uh, it can get a little crazy. It can get a little bit, uh, well, uh, hard to understand, as I guess, is maybe the best way to do it. But if you didn't see the debate, uh, we put together a little montage here for you. Here's a little sampling of, of what happened Monday night. Friends, I'm excited about the future of Ontario. But it's up to each of us to roll up our sleeves and get it done. Let's face it, the Ford Conservatives have walked away from their responsibility to lead and left you to fend for yourselves. We need to stop Mr. Ford from paving over our future. We need affordable homes, not expensive highways. My question to Mr. Ford is, who cuts education during a global pandemic? Mr. Del Duca, I just want to remind you, under yourself and uh, former Premier Kathleen Wynne, you destroyed this province. Have you talked to a nurse lately? Have you talked to a nurse about how disrespected they feel? How insulted they feel? being called heroes and then essentially having their wages cut by having them frozen. The hospitals were on their knees when COVID hit. The Liberal government gave us hallway medicine, but of course, Doug Ford's cuts just hurt more. There is perhaps no other place where Mr. Ford's record has been more appalling than in publicly funded education. Well, I think in the past couple of years, if it's taught us anything, is leadership matters. That's a little bit of what uh, happened on Monday night. And, and I guess the question a lot of us have right now is uh, pre-debate, it was pretty obvious that uh, Doug Ford of the Conservative PCs had a, a, a comfortable lead, not substantial, but a comfortable lead. And there seemed to be a race for second place. So what happened on Monday night? And is it going to change people's attitude? Is it going to change people's minds? Are those numbers going to change significantly? Well, there are folks that are keeping an eye on that. And uh, they're at Abacus Data, of course. Uh, and we want to get a read on exactly where we are right now and what might happen in the next uh, two weeks and a couple of days. And uh, to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Oksana Kiszczek, who is the Director of Strategy and Insights with Abacus Data. Oksana, pleasure to have you back in the program. Hope you're doing well these days. Yeah, good to talk to you again, Bill. Listen, I know you guys are data stuff and everything, but I mean, you follow this stuff exclusively and and very, very in-depth. What was your read? What was your read on what you saw on Monday night and what we heard on Monday night? Is, Is it a game changer? Um, I think it's, I don't think necessarily, I think looking at, I mean, I'm going to take it back to the data here as the data person, but um, we're seeing that not many people are following the election very closely. I think debates are kind of that opportunity to sort of peek in and see what's happening and make your assessment of a leader. Um, But 
at least up until then, and we'll see kind of how our numbers change post-debate, people aren't following very closely. So if you aren't having a lot of people tune in, there aren't a lot of opportunities for people to, to make a different opinion about different leaders and, and different policies. And I think that um, that's kind of the reason why the election is, is sort of heading out the way it is, is that people don't know um, much about who different leaders are, especially uh, Stephen Del Duca. And when you don't have a lot of awareness and you don't have a lot of people paying attention, um, then I think it's really hard for people to, to change their minds and to change the trajectory. But as, as you've told us uh, with some of the past elections, federal and provincial, of course, uh, this is usually the time frame when people maybe do perk up a little bit those last two weeks of the campaign and say, i got to figure out who I'm going to vote for. I haven't been paying attention. You know, hockey playoffs and everything else. Some people are still sulking because the Leafs lost, I guess. So. But now they may be paying attention, if not, you know, intently, but a little bit. The pre, as you mentioned, pre-debate, uh, Doug Ford had a, had a comfortable lead. And uh, there seemed to be a race for second place between Del Duca and Horvath. Uh, but mm-hmm. the data that you released, though, Oksana, I found rather interesting. Uh, and I, I know, obviously, we want to deal with the here and now. Okay, what's going to happen on June 2nd in this election? But mm-hmm. when you compare some of the numbers to what happened in 2018, the last election, uh, it's it's an interesting story. The PZs are down. Uh, the Liberals are up considerably. And the NDP have really taken a dive. Now, that's I say that's from four years ago. But uh, that was one election. This is the next one. It looks like some voters' minds have changed in the last four years. Yeah, I think there's definitely sort of a bit of a sway. I think looking back to the 2018 election, it was very mm-hmm. much a change election, um, both in that there was a, a change in government and then a lot more um, Ontarians said they want to change going into that election. So it's kind of expected and predicted. And there was a bit of a shift between, I think, the Liberal and NDP. Um, that's a really good point to kind of look at um, how their numbers sort of changed and they sort of flip-flopped in, in sort of where they placed in the lineup. Um, and so I think now um, the Liberals have certainly seen um, a bit of a comeback. Um, they're up eight points since 2018 election. Um, and I think they're taking those points away from the NDP from the most part, who are down 10 points um, since the last election. So I think it's definitely still that, that battle for a second. I think you're right, the PCs are, are down six, um, but they're still very much in the lead. Um, and I think that uh, they're a little bit too far ahead, at least right now, that there's going to be sort of any considerable shift um, between sort of the PCs and the Liberals. When we look at folks who want change, they're fairly evenly split, split still between the Liberals and the NDP. So there's still that, that battle for a second that I think will sort of pull the Liberals back into that second-third battle rather than that first-second. But um, the, the shift is interesting to sort of see how the landscape is, is moving kind of post-change election. Yeah, it's almost vote for vote, isn't it? Um, as you say, the NDP mm-hmm. are down 10, the Liberals are up 8, uh, so, which is in the margin of error. But And I'm not suggesting that they're going to, re- you know, uh, change places. And, you know, I don't, it, mm-hmm. it could, because what what matters here, is, as we've talked about in the past, are seat counts. It's it's not yeah. just that you've got yeah. support, it's where is that support. And, of course, you guys at Abacus uh, have uh, you know, gone to great detail and, and get research on that. Uh, we've talked mm-hmm. about the GTA area, Metro mm-hmm. Toronto area, as, as, as voter rich, and that's where an awful lot of the seats in the Ontario legislature are. And uh, yeah. it seems to be the Liberals have had a stronghold there for quite some time. Uh, mm-hmm. But the PCs are, are, are in the race there too, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, certainly um, in GTA, in East and Southwest. Um, and, well, I guess I'm just listing off all of the regions in Ontario. Um, yeah. You see a fairly strong um, sort of uh, PC lead. The Liberals sort of are edging out directly in Toronto. Um, but I think that kind of goes back to your point about seat count and where those votes are, because it's not just about popular vote. Um, it's about securing those seats and securing those votes of people who are voting, too. We actually see um, kind of... as 
we look at age groups getting older and older, um, the vote share for PCs grows and grows. So vote share um, for the NTP and liberal is coming from a lot of younger voters who unfortunately, and, and I'm in that age bracket, um, don't tend to, to go to the polls as reliably as older voters do. So there's a couple signals sort of beyond the popular vote about what might uh, happen in terms of seats. There's a, I, I guess there's a, a, obviously an element of truth here, because the numbers back this up, that as we get a- older, as we age, uh, we tend to become more small-c conservative, not necessarily voting conservative, uh, mm-hmm. but our attitudes change, uh, and our, our voting patterns change. You're absolutely right. I mean, most political parties count on the fact that people that are over 60 uh, that are supportive of them are going to go out and vote. Uh, not mm-hmm. so much, as you mentioned, in that younger demographic. So that's one of the challenges, I guess, for all the parties, isn't it, to try to attract those young voters and, get A, get them interested, and B, get them interested in, in their party. Yeah, I think that's a particular challenge kind of going into an election, kind of, I don't know if you want to call this a post-pandemic time or still mid-pandemic time, where where people aren't really paying attention and there's a lot of other things on their minds. I think we saw this with the federal election um, last year as well, and while that's not a direct comparison, um, voter turnout sort of dropped a little bit. And so um, I think it tends to drop um, in those groups that were maybe not as likely to vote in the first place. So when there's a lot of other issues going on, um, it's not necessarily a changed election or any of that stuff. There's no sort of intention um, to, to really change or to get out and, and vote because your vote maybe doesn't matter as much as you think it would in, in a change election. Well, you guys cover that with some of the questions that you've asked folks, too. That is, uh, the question A is, who do you support? And that's, as we were talking about right now, uh, 35 for the PCs, Liberals 28, and the NDP at 24. But you mm-hmm. asked a follow-up question is, yeah, but are you going to vote? In other words, do you yeah. actually intend to vote in this? And boy, that, that gap widens considerably with that group, doesn't it? Yeah, so looking among kind of the people who say they're very likely to vote, the PCs have 39% of vote share and Liberals have 27%. So that is a very large gap. Again, popular vote, um, but very large gap. And the PCs are actually gaining in that, too. They uh, rose four points. Um, so it's kind of sort of that's sort of another indicator of, of what um, the, the results might be come June 2nd. And, and you already mentioned about following the campaign, and it's not really happening. And we anticipate that that interest might actually uh, increase. It usually does slightly. Uh, the desire for change you talked about a couple of minutes ago, and that's always important. Uh, when people want change, uh, you usually see the the number of people who vote go up, not necessarily considerably, but they're motivated and say, look, I, I don't want that party anymore, or, you know, whatever the case might be, because we tend to vote parties out as opposed to vote, voting parties in. But mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to be a driving force in this election, does it? I mean, most people are just kind of, eh, I'm probably going to mm-hmm. vote, and I'll probably vote for these guys. But it's not like, yeah, I'm going to get out there because we have to do something about, you know, name a subject, really. Yeah. We're not there yet, are we? No, no, we're about 50% that say they definitely want to change government, which might seem high. But if you look at what it was compared to in the 2018 election, it was closer to, to two-thirds, or just over 60%. So it's quite a bit of a big difference there. And then if you look at what it was um, on the final weekend before the 2021 election, half of, of folks said they want to change then, and, and look what happened. Uh, we didn't we didn't get change. And so I think wanting change and then actually going to the polls to initiate that change um, are two different things. And then even if um, all these, these people who say they want change, perhaps they make it out to the polls, um, they're split between the NDPs and Liberals. So even then, I'm not sure that they'll sort of pull um, any of those other contenders besides the PCs across the finish line. 
What I find interesting about this is uh, what this question here really kind of me. if there's a change in government, you know, because you say there is that desire for change with some of the people. Uh, if the mm -hmm. PCs are replaced with another party, would your life after four years be, and you give them some choices here, you know, uh, better, mm -hmm. no difference. Most of them basically are kind of no difference. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, so what the, 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 the passion that I know yeah. political parties want to see from the public just just isn't there yet, is it? Which probably goes no. to your point that we're not paying attention. Yeah, people aren't paying attention. There isn't, um, like, life certainly isn't great uh, right now. There's so, so many issues, healthcare, inflation, uh, housing, all of these things. Um, they're not great, but they're not necessarily driving people to say um, it's worth sort of going out and, and electing a different government because I think that's something that would change these issues. It's just not... Um, People aren't motivated um, in the same way that they might be in other elections to sort of get out there and make change. Uh, and then the other side of the coin is, you know, if the PCs are reelected, again, most people are saying, eh, but not, not much is going to change. It is what it is, mm -hmm. uh, which yeah. is kind of a nonchalant <laughs> attitude, I suppose. Uh, let's talk about the leaders, because that, that's important. Uh, and uh, we know that uh, in the middle of the pandemic, when things were not going well for all of us, uh, Doug Ford's popularity took a real nosedive. I mean, the, the PCs were still relatively popular but his personal numbers weren't good what's the status now yeah so Doug Ford has been on a really interesting roller coaster I think of impressions he was pretty negative kind of right at the beginning of the pandemic back in February but he's been on kind of that flip-flop positive and negative roller coaster for quite some time um, in our, our latest numbers from earlier this week uh, we do see the negative uptick slightly so 44 percent have a negative view 33 percent have a positive um, but I think that's sort of uh, natural for someone who's a leader and that um, there's most people have an impression of you now given that they've seen you around for the last four years um, I think that uh, his negatives aren't great but his positives are also better than, than anyone else and so I think that that's sort of important to keep in mind when 33% um, have a positive impression of Doug Ford only 20% have the same as Stephen Del Duca um, so when you look at sort of comparing and contrasting different leaders and who people want to sort of see as, as the face of their provincial government um, Doug Ford despite his negatives, still does have a bit of a lead on the others. Well, because, as you say, we we know him. I mean, and, and four years mm -hmm. ago, he was the new guy in town, right? You know, mm -hmm. he just re recently took, had taken over the the leadership of the party, uh, and bingo, they were right into an election not too long after that. So that's that's where he was. Uh, so Del mm -hmm. Duca is, is in that same position right now. Now, I'm not suggesting that Del Duca can pull off what Ford did, because there were other factors, and, and your data back four mm -hmm. years ago certainly indicated that the, the population here was, was quite fed up, obviously, with the Kathleen Wynne government, and they were looking to... Mm -hmm. to change anything uh, that that yeah. that z zeal for a change though just isn't here this election um, so yeah. it's uh, it's going to be much more difficult no. for somebody to overtake the pcs at this stage isn't it yeah i think certainly the liberals can kind of edge their way back up to to closer to position where they were but i just don't think that they're going to sort of beat out beat up Ford and the PCs. And we also asked um, a question about who do you think would be the best premier? Um, three quarters, or sorry, one third, so 34% said Ford, 20% Forbaz, and 15% only Del Duca. So I think that looking at sort of the personas there, um, there really isn't any intention to, to replace uh, the premier with a different persona. Well, it uh, it paints an interesting picture with uh, the work that you guys do at Abacus, and it's always a pleasure, Oksana, to have you on the program. Thank you so much for this. Uh, stay well, and uh, we'll talk again as we get closer to Election Day. Yeah, you too. Talk soon. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about reconciliation. As we know, the uh, Prince of Wales uh, and, and his wife, uh, Camilla Parker, are in uh, Ottawa. Well, they were in Newfoundland. That's where it started off in the nation's capital yesterday talking. 
and uh, and talking about reconciliation it seemed to be the theme that the prince had in the number of different speeches he's made over the last couple of days. Uh, but is it enough? Uh, what he's talking about right now. Uh, after Pope Francis apologized on behalf of the Catholic Church last month, as you recall, uh, Cassidy Caron, who is, uh, of course, one of the spokespersons for the, the Métis uh, who are concerned about that and made the trip over to Rome a few months ago, says that residential school survivors told her that an apology from the Queen would also be important. Here's an apology from, from the Queen would also be appropriate uh, for, you know, quite a few different reasons. Um, one of the most obvious being that the Queen is the head of the Anglican Church. Uh, so let's talk about that and the implications, and uh, are they going far enough? Uh, to talk about that and uh, the implications uh, going forward, not just for First Nations, but for the government and for the UK government as well. Pleased to welcome to the program uh, Dr. Don La Lavelle Harvard, uh, who is, of course, the director of the First People's House of Learning at Trent University. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, maybe let's start off exactly with uh, what, what Ms. Caron was just talking about a few minutes ago. Uh, we recall that she was part of the delegation, or one of the delegations that was in Rome, uh, addressing the Pope and their concerns. And uh, we can talk about that apology and the trip in, in a couple of seconds. But let's talk about what the Prince is talking about. Uh, and the inference with some of the speeches that reconciliation is a process and, uh, the, you know, the government has to, you know, know their place and, and recognize their place and accept uh, culpability for that. There are some critics, as, as I'm sure you've heard, Doctor, that are saying, well, that's the kettle calling the pot black. Uh, the UK, the, the crown, in other words, uh, was as a player in this whole thing for many, many years. And, and as uh, she mentioned, as Cassidy mentioned in that clip we just played, uh, the Queen is, of course, the head of the Anglican Church who were involved in this as well. Is an apology from the Queen forthcoming here? Should it be? Well, I think it very much should be. I mean, what people forget, and all you have to do is look at you know, the department within the Trudeau government that is literally called Crown Indigenous Relations. So all of the treaties were signed between the Crown and Indigenous peoples. All of these pieces of legislation that had to be rubber stamped by the Governor General on behalf of the Crown, I mean, there is, at the end of the day, that is where the buck stops in terms of responsibility. I mean, it whether it was those early treaties that were... Um, signed directly with you know, Queen Elizabeth's predecessor, right up till now, there is for sure responsibility. There should be, and not just an apology. And then when you add to that, that the Queen is the head of the Anglican Church, who was also impacted. So, I mean, there really is no point passing the buck on this one, whether it was government or the Church, because in this case, the Crown, the Queen, is responsible for both. One of the quotes from, uh, I guess it was yesterday's speech from the Prince, said uh, we must find new ways to come to terms with the darker and more difficult aspects of the past, acknowledging, reconciling, and striving to do better. Uh, it's a process that starts with listening. Uh, do you get the sense that, that that's opening the door uh, for the Crown to, to become involved in this? Uh, I, I, he was talking about the Canadian people and the Canadian government, I assume, uh, in the context of the speech, uh, but should he have included his own mother and, and, and of course, the UK and, and past parliaments uh, that were told uh, were aware of what was going on and, and, of course, did nothing? Well, and he should 100% be including the responsibility of the crown i mean they are here touring their you know former colony touring one of the members of of their realm so to speak um that's why they're here that's who they're representing 
And so you can't have it both ways. I mean, you're, you're coming across this country representing the Queen, so there does need to be that responsibility. And, you know, we're hoping that with his comments about, you know, finding a new way forward and that there should be a recognition of some of that responsibility, as we've talked about with the, the Catholic Church, that it's not just about apologizing. Apologizing is a really important first step, but there does need to be a commitment to supporting that healing process and that is a much longer journey that's not a that's not an apology and it all goes away and that's not a short-term you know three-year healing program and everybody's better it the you can't heal from generations of colonization within a you know a short-term program because it was not lost on me and i'm sure many other people that that as a matter of fact almost as uh the prince was making that speech and, and uttering those words uh, came news of the discovery of, of what looks like more graves uh, in, in one of the facilities, uh, which I think, if nothing else, Doctor, underscores exactly the gravity of the situation. Well, and I think that's it, right? And, and you know, the, the finding of the graves is that tipping point for a lot of people where you can no longer deny, no longer suggest that this was just, you know, a well-intentioned process gone wrong. I mean, mass graves do not begin with good intentions in anybody's mind. And so it's, but it's, that is the tipping point of what was a hundred year long process of taking the lands, of disempowering, of not honoring the treaties that they signed in good faith and that our people signed in good faith. So this is a really long process. And it, as you said, you know, finding those graves right at the exact same time really underscores the, the tra- this is not just dark and difficult times. I mean, these are tragedies. These are atrocities. These are horrors, not just difficulties. When uh, the, the Pope uh, issued the apology, uh, you know, there was the talk about, okay, we want to share information, uh, records of who was in the tools, what happened to them, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm getting word that, uh, that that's not happening, and not, certainly not to the degree that people want it to happen. Could the Crown play a role in that as well? I mean, certainly, uh, you know, as, as the overseer, and especially uh, with the monarch as the, the head of the Anglican Church there, uh, that, that's got to be part of this process, isn't it? I mean, there are still people that you and I have talked about in the past that don't know what happened to their relatives, their sons, their daughters, their grandchildren. Uh, just Some of them just disappeared. Well, and you can imagine the influence that the Queen has globally, that the Queen has. I mean, now we recognize the Anglican Church was, you know, created because of a falling out between the crown and, and the, the Pope and the church. Um, but, you know, the, the influence around the globe is immeasurable for the crown. So if they were to, you know, stand up and say, you know, the importance of these records forthcoming for those families who deserve, for those who didn't survive, who deserve to be repatriated, who deserve to be able to go home because, you know, their lives, to, for their families to find out what happened to them. I mean, that's, it's so critical for healing what happened in the past is, you know, doing what we can to find closure for those families. Well, what's interesting here is, is if we just step back a little bit, Doctor, and look at the bigger picture here, uh, this is almost a reckoning of, of, of the mindset of, of back in those days anyway, of the Crown uh, and the British Empire and, and the sorts of things that have gone on. Uh, because that same kind of pushback and that same sort of response and that same, I think, desire for, for some acknowledgement of what happened is being heard in other parts of the world where the British Empire uh, held sway. Uh, 
India certainly, but uh, with the pushback that they had, but even Jamaica, other Caribbean uh, places where the British had set up shop, uh, they're hearing this right now. And I think it, it probably reinstates and, and underscores uh, the, the mindset of colonialism back in those days and, and the, the terror that it caused. Well, and this is it. I mean, colonization, colonialism, going in and, you know, taking over somebody else's lands and, and oppressing those people and, you know, under some misguided sense that your way of life is somehow better or civilized and should be for everybody, whether they want it or not. You know, the, the damages that have been caused around the world in the name of this is immeasurable. And how many countries now are stepping up and reclaiming their rightful role, their rightful right to, you know, self-determination in their own lands. And it is, a, I, I think I've looked into this, that the, you know, the, the number of countries around the world that were colonized under the, the British crown is, it's shocking when you actually look at just how much of the globe and how many people of all kinds of different nationalities, religions, ethnicities were colonized and the immeasurable damage that has happened. It's not just here. Where are the, the leaders that speak up on this? I mean, the indigenous leaders have been there. Uh, the prime minister, uh, in, in addressing uh, the, the crowd that was there yesterday after the prince spoke, uh, would not get into the discussion of the argument about whether or not the crown should actually uh, become involved with an apology and some sense of reconciliation. Uh, we need support. We need stronger voices. Are, are, you, are you satisfied and are the indigenous groups satisfied uh, that the elected leaders are doing what needs to be done here? Not yet. I do think there needs to be stronger voices. I do think there needs to be demands. Because the underlying question and, you know, the sort of excuse, you know, Will and Kate are not responsible for what the Crown did, you know, under pre their predecessors. Prince Charles and Camilla are not responsible. The Queen, you know, so much of this stuff happened prior to her reign. But you cannot claim the privilege and in inheriting the privilege and the immense wealth and the territories and the lands of your predecessors and somehow say you are not inheriting the responsibility for the damage that they wrought. You, you can't have your cake and eat it too in that sense. Like if you're inheriting the privilege and you're inheriting those lands and all the wealth that came from those lands, then you're also inheriting responsibility for the process that put that wealth into your hands. And that's where, you know, we need to look at that. If they're going to be, that's why people are questioning, you know, the role of the queen, the role of the monarchy is it's not just, you know, beautiful people in their fancy designer outfits traveling around the world and, you know, coming in for a little handshake and a photo opportunity. There needs to be responsibility. And absolutely, the government of the people here in Canada needs to be the one stepping up on behalf of not just Indigenous people, because I think most Canadians are horrified by what has happened now that most people didn't know. And now that we know, you can't help but be horrified and you can't help but demand that something be done about this. But I, I guess the question here is how much pressure should be exerted uh, by our political leaders? And let's face it, it's it's one thing to, to acknowledge or even hold an audience with Indigenous groups, but uh, to, to say, look, if this has to be done, we need to have a discussion about this through diplomatic circles or whatever the case might be. Let me ask you, though, I, you and I haven't talked for a little while, and in, the, in that interim period, uh, the uh, papal visit to Canada was announced, uh, the itinerary for that. Uh, mixed reaction, uh, especially among Indigenous groups. That think it's, I just mentioned the, the term photo op a couple of minutes ago. Some of them have actually characterized the itinerary as simply a photo op to say, here, I'm, I'm here, 
uh, I've already apologized. Uh, what would you like to see happen, and are you satisfied with what they seem to be planning so far? I mean, I, I recognize the, the age of, of the Pope, but at the same time, we also need to recognize the age of many of those survivors deserve an apology. And simply having three stops across Canada, you know, to go to either Edmonton, Quebec, or, you know, in, in the far north in the Arctic, so many of those survivors here in Ontario that deserve an apology are not going to get the chance. I mean, they should be stopping in every, the Pope should stop in every province so that at least people will have an opportunity. Many still won't be able to make it. But just to recognize the vastness of this territory, to, to you know, drop in in three places across the country and say that's good enough is absurd. When you look at the vastness of Canada compared to, you know, when, when you go to you know, even the UK, you could put the, since we're speaking about the crown, you could take the entire United Kingdom, drop it in Ontario and still have room left over. So to, to suggest that, well, I went to Canada and I was in Quebec as well as Edmonton, you know, there's literally spaces the size of the entire United Kingdom in between those two places. And, and so many survivors are missing out. And so many survivors that have waited lifetime for this apology and deserve to at least have a chance to be there to hear it. Well, we've heard a number of times about closure and, and people who have lost loved ones uh, through d incredibly dire circumstances and tragedies. Indigenous people deserve that, that, that as well. Uh, and I know some of them have spoken out about this. Uh, we talked about some of them who are still missing. We don't know what's happened to them. And, and that, that's a part of that whole closure process, isn't it, to, to finally know what happened and, and where they are and where their remains are? Well, and I think that's what's absolutely critical. I mean, it's, it's one thing to apologize and say we're sorry, but we're still going to hide the record. You know, we, we need to have full disclosure so that those families can have closure, so that they know what happened, and so that, you know, the souls of those children can be laid to rest. I think that's so critical. And, you know, if we start skimping and, and, you know, having one half and not the other, you know, you can't have reconciliation until you have the truth. That's why it's called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the truth is contained in those documents. And those documents need to come to light. You know, just like a child who's afraid of the monsters under the bed and you shine the light under there, we need to shine a light on what happened so that future generations can heal from what happened so that they can we can finally start talking about the truth, and only then can we move forward to reconciliation. Well, it's interesting to see just how uh, the prince is going to respond to this and, uh, and what kind of a conversation I guess he's going to have with the queen when he gets back there. Uh, as well, you say, having... Thing, right? We really yeah. hope that he's going to go back and say, this needs to be done. If people, you know, we're still going to be the head of state, the crown has responsibility. If people are going to have faith in this, then this has to be done. Absolutely. We're certainly going to keep our eye on it in the, in the days ahead of how they are going to respond to this and how's the Queen going to respond to it as well. Uh, Don, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate your input into this. Wonderful. You take care. Have a good day. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We need more ticky-tocky houses built. It's all about supply, right? Uh, but there has been a significant change in the last couple of weeks in the housing market uh, on a nationwide basis, but uh, we can talk about Ontario specifically. Uh, economists are predicting that uh, home prices are actually going to fall by about 20% this year as uh, high interest rates and, well, another 
uh, series of initiatives that the government and then, of course, the Bank of Canada are trying to initiate uh, to try to cool things off a little bit. But uh, what are the ramifications of that? Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Lou Piriano, who's the president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington. Uh, Lou, good to talk with you again. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning to you and all. Nothing lasts forever. And these uh, days when prices were screwing up and you had people bidding on things and you know selling at sometimes tens and twenties or thousands of dollars more over asking price, uh, are they in the rearview mirror now? Is that all over, Lou? So, Bill, if, if I may, just with your permission, just take a moment to put this into some context, both yeah, at the please. macro level, you just referred to Canada, and then right down to our, our local level. Uh, and I think this would apply to your folks in London as well. Uh, you know, I just read a CMHC report, that's Canada Mortgage and Housing, and these are some of the comments. Their objectives were to tackle a number of important housing problems, insufficient production of moderately priced housing, affordability problems faced by prospective homeowners, lack of incentives for construction and rental accommodation. And they say it seems unlikely that production will keep pace with needs. A million units will be required. Units being produced are increasingly priced beyond the means of moderate Canadians, supply problem in the rental site sector with vacancy rates of less than 2% in Canadian cities and affordability affected by increasing construction costs compounded by increased interest rates, placing home ownership beyond the reach of families. So Bill, I think this report summarizes accurately our current position. However, it was done in 1975. So this tells us two <laughs> things, two things. The first, the problems are systemic and successive governments have had no effect on solutions. Second, better planning is needed at all levels of government. Organized real estate is asking to be included in roundtable discussions on how to go forward. I think it only makes sense to have the professionals at the table. Now, for individuals, more to your point, uh, adjust your expectations. The market is slowing, but is by no means dead. It's a mixed bag with some properties still getting multiple offers, and some sitting on the market. So there is opportunity for buyers. Sellers have to be realistic about the changes and buyers have to know the real estate market is still healthy. So expect more choice, moderated prices, but not bargain basement prices. Uh, more than ever, consumers have to choose uh, a member of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington Wisely, or RAB for short. Uh, go to rab.ca for a member's directory. You know, Bill, all realtors are created equal but they don't all stay equal. Some have specialized knowledge, but perhaps you only need basic information. Interview a few. Managing market expectations with sound advice is part of our job, and RAB members will continue to do just that as this market evolves and reveals itself about upcoming trends. And I say reveals itself because I think we're a bit premature in predicting uh, these types of price drops, especially as all real estate is local, and that's a very broad sweeping statement uh, that covers, uh, you know, the entire country by the sound of it. Uh, there are people, though, that, as you know, Lou, that, that track these numbers, and uh, you know that, that's their job, I suppose. Uh, the National Home Price Index, uh, which uh, adjusts uh, for pricing volatility, uh, fell 0.6% uh, to 866.7 for March and April. Uh, and they're the ones that are suggesting that there's going to be a 20% uh, uh, drop in, in. Again, how can you do that when there's so many different variables across the country? And the bigger picture that I looked at when I saw these and that you see that that headline 20% drop in, in, in prices and then compared to where we were a year ago and they're still significantly higher than they were even with that 20% drop you still got to pay a lot more for a house now than you did 10 12 months ago. 
Well, they, that's so true. And may I remind everyone that at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 20, CMHC predicted a 20% drop in prices. In fact, they went up 20% for a 40% margin of error. Error. Uh, I, I really uh, think that uh, with all due respect to the, the national you know, price index and all, that, that you again, you, you have to go locally. We literally are out there and taking the temperature of the market every day. You're talking to buyers and sellers who are telling you how they feel about things. Uh, one thing that you know we had was immigration uh, stopped during the pandemic. This uh, will open up again. There's, as you say, a number of factors that would contribute to suggesting that uh, pricing is not going anywhere very far. They, they always talk, though, Lou, about cooling the market. Things are just too hot. You know, the prices are skyrocketing. People can't afford houses. Uh, and I, I'm wondering if those two issues are even uh, on the same plane. I mean, the lack of affordability is one thing, uh, but is, is it raising the interest rates actually the answer to that? That's what the Bank of Canada is doing. Uh, in a couple of weeks, first of June, of course, they're, they're planning uh, on another update, and we know the rates are going to go up. They already told us they are, uh, but it doesn't seem to be having that sort of an impact. Yeah, you know, there always has been an inverse relationship between interest rates and prices. Interest rates go way up, prices do tend to go down, and vice versa. That's what we just saw, you know, 1%, 1.5% interest rates. Uh, people are finding a way around it uh, as well, though, Bill. They're taking variable rate mortgages, which are at a lower cost. Uh, so, you know, no matter which way you slice this and dice it, there's a lack of supply. So there's no getting around that. And I, as I said, I, I know that we had a, a four, uh, sorry, a 3.7% decrease in average price homes in Hamilton over two months. But again, I can attribute that to many things, uh, notwithstanding just the fact that it's just two months. It's not a whole year. So as I said just a moment ago, we will see how this will reveal itself. And if you invite me back to the show, we'll talk about that uh, as May and June statistics become available. Oh, by the way, yeah, you mentioned 3.7% drop in the Hamilton and Burlington area. Uh, it was 4% in uh, in London. So it's there's there's a trend there. But as you say, the 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 numbers have defied what the experts had been predicting for the last almost two and a half, three years now. So every time that we see a dip like this, all of a sudden, ah, there's a trend. Ha ha. We're right this time. Uh, but the prices continue to go up. Uh, you know, I, I've talked to a few agents in, in the last little while, and they say they're doing just fine. Thank you very much. It's not like the phone's not ringing. Uh, and, you know, we're still selling houses here. Absolutely. And, and unfortunately, the interest rate situation does tend to uh, be negative for first-time buyers. But don't forget, there's a lot of people out there with a lot of investment money. And they're not really that much interested in what the uh, mortgage rate is because they're buying cash or mostly cash. Well, that raises another issue, and I wanted to get your read on this, uh, because governments, but the provincial government, the federal government, uh, have talked about speculators. And, and they say that's one of the things that's, that's driving prices up here for even first-time home buyers. Uh, initially, they were targeting, they say, foreign investment. You know, that's those people from offshore that are buying these properties, and they're, they're driving it crazy. Then we find out that that's only about 3% of sales. So, oh, okay, it's not them. Now, of course, they're turning their, their attention saying, okay, it's, it's, it's the people in the country that are doing it. I, I, I'm wondering if they actually even have numbers to back that up. I mean, you know, are, are people buying three, four houses and, and, and trying to flip them for a huge profit? Is that really happening to the extent that it is? I mean, the, the house itself is more expensive. Or are these uh, numbers that they're, they're just trying to extrapolate from something else to try to justify what they're doing? Extrapolation is a great word. Uh, when Hamilton was considering a 
vacant home tax, and they, they still may be. Um, you know, they, they took the numbers from British Columbia on the number of vacant homes and divided by the population to decide how many vacant homes there were in the Hamilton area. It, it's just crazy. Um, and they came up with a number like 1177 uh, a proposed tax of $2 million to put out to get a program in place, hiring 17 staff to go around looking for vacant houses, and all with the idea that you may find a vacant house and be able to throw a little bit of a tax on it every year, but it doesn't guarantee that one single unit will come on the market for rent. So you know what Ronald Reagan said, you know, the most, danger, you know, the, the most dangerous words, right? Uh, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help you. Um, in in in, in my time, almost 50 years in this business, I've seen about one program that I considered to be effective, and that was the Home Ownership Made Easy program the provincial government had in the late 70s, early 80s, where they uh, had land and they leased it out and you paid for the house, but you got the land lease. That was very effective. And of course, things like RSPs and, and so on are, are effective. But beyond that, uh, the, you know, the uh, stress test, ridiculous. If you were a young couple in nine, uh, you know, five years ago and you couldn't quite qualify for a $500,000 house, guess what? You're not qualifying at all now, five years later. So if they had just let you buy it and forget about the fact that interest rates might increase, which of course they didn't, they went down, you've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity. So that's just one example where the government needs to keep their nose out, keep things moving along, Go to the cities, make sure that building permits are available, and make sure that uh, land is opened up. Well, I want to talk to you about that as well, because that is a factor. We all need to talk about supply and demand. The demand is still there. Is the supply increasing, and, and what kind of supply is it? I know you and I have had discussions uh, about urban boundary expansion or lack thereof, and, and that changes from community to community. Uh, you know, do we grow up or do we grow out? I mean, we're talking about significant population increases in many of the uh, communities that we're talking about here over the last uh, little while, but for, more looking forward into the next 15 to 20 years. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical right now, Lou, as to whether or not we're going to have houses. Immigration's going to open up again. Uh, people are going to come here and looking for jobs because we had, can't find people to fill the jobs that we've got here. They got to have a place to live. And uh, maybe they don't want to live in a condo. Maybe, you know, the, the family that moves here from, well, Ukraine or could be anywhere uh, with three or four kids is to say, I don't want an apartment. I want a house. I want a, a background. I want a backyard. I want a, a, a playground nearby. Uh, are we going to be able to accommodate those needs? So that's what we consistently hear is we don't want to be cooped up in a 400 square foot condo downtown with two kids and a cat. Uh, so you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, I, I have uh, nothing but respect for the folks that are concerned about expanding the urban boundary, uh, farmland, and so on and so forth. But folks, it's going to happen one way or another, or you're going to be living on top of each other. Uh, they're the same folks that don't want you to be able to build a triplex in a, in a subdivision out, uh, in the city. Uh, so, you know, you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You've got to choose one or the other. You're absolutely right, Bill. The immigration is there. The desire of young people to own property is there. Something's got to give. And, and I'm glad to see people moving downtown and the condo developments are going. That's wonderful. And, and you know, it's it's a different kind of home buyer. And, and if that's what suits you and that's what attracts you, knock yourself out. You know, that that's fine. But it's not for everybody. And, and that just seems that, that what 
the quote-unquote experts are telling a lot of us is, well, that's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to change your expectations. And this is what we're building. And if you want a house, this is what you're going to get. And they're, you know, they're talking about mini houses and they're talking about, as you say, condos downtown, uh, refurbishing land in, in some of the old, uh, you know, brownfield areas. Uh, and philosophically, it's, it's, it sounds great. and It's the right thing to do. But practically, pragmatically, as you and I've talked about, you know, the factor that they don't seem to want to take into consideration here is what the consumer wants. You know, I, I think one of the first things you told me many, many years ago when we had these discussions, I uh, said, so what's a, that house worth? He says, whatever somebody wants to pay for it. That's what it's worth. Uh, you know, you can list it for $800,000, but if the highest offer you get is $200,000, that's what it's worth uh, on the market. And, and they're the planning too much, I think, with philosophical uh, rationale as opposed to pragmatism here. And you're right, I'm afraid it's going to push up against a wall pretty soon, and we're going to have to do something about it. So, you know, the the city itself, the city staff recommended uh, expansion of the urban boundary. And you've got to get the politics out of this. You know, folks, I I get it that, uh, you know, there's a hue and cry from uh, a certain element uh, not to to consider it. But um, that's going to come back. And uh, you know, maybe with a change of council, I don't know, maybe things will be different. But your own city staff is telling you you've got to do this. Well, and they didn't heed that advice. Uh, so now staff, of course, do what council tells them to do. So there's been a, I don't think there's been a change of mindset, but there's been a change in policy. So they're trying to respond to that as well. Uh, but again, you come down to the matter of affordability and where we're going to build some of these things. Uh, and we're not going to, just by definition of what they want to do, uh, take over a brownfield site and say, okay, we're going to give you that 35-foot lot uh, so you can have your own property and your own front lawn. They're not going to do that. They're going to squeeze as many units in as they can. And a lot of people are simply going to say, well, I'm going to go someplace else, which is what they're doing now. You know, they, They're saying, I'm not interested in that, so I'm going to go. Uh, I was going to say you go to the outlying areas, even those are starting to fill up right now. You look at what's happening in London and surrounding area, and certainly in the Hamilton area as well. Uh, and I know a family just moved to Nova Scotia. Uh, uh, you know, Alberta, Calgary right now has a lower housing price than London and Hamilton. You're right. I've had, I've had a couple of colleagues uh, leave to uh, go to the East Coast and a couple of clients. But even, uh, even they are experiencing uh, those uh, higher prices that they're not used to anymore, or, or, or now, I should say. And uh, it, it's look, it's not going away, as we've said. So, you know, uh, I did I did see something encouraging uh, yesterday on a, uh, I think it was MSNBC financial reporting. One one fellow says that this inflation is going to come down, that the economy is sound. He was talking from the U.S. But, uh, you know, if that's the case, then maybe those variable rate mortgages are going to work out for folks. And uh, they have over the long term. Uh, they've always been cheaper than uh, fixed rates. So uh, maybe there's hope on the horizon to uh, make things more affordable again. Well, and I just think raising interest rates to cool the market is is basically slamming the door on a lot of people that may want to get into the market. And I, I find that to be a problem. But where's the outside-the-box thinking, Lou? I, I, I know people that took advantage of that program you talked about uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, where you, essentially you buy the house and you, you lease the land. and. You, it takes you a while to pay it off, but it was there. It was their foot in the door to get into the market, uh, and and I still think uh, you're right. It's an it's a viable option that the government should be looking at right now. Uh, when they say we're going to you know build 1.5 million houses or whatever, talk to us about how you're going to do it and how you're going to make them affordable. Uh, not by driving interest rates up so high that that and not everybody's got the bank of mom and dad to to rely on to do that sort of thing. Uh, the government's got to be a little more open minded and and. And, and a little more creative here. And and the example you just brought up here, uh, 
it, it's it's not in reinventing the wheel. It's already there. The technology is there. The concept is really there. Dust it off. It's in somebody's bottom drawer someplace. Let's, let's, let's try that again. I'm sure that's going to help an awful lot of people get into the market. Well, the other thing that's already there and it's been done before and done successfully that would make uh, property ownership more affordable tomorrow morning would be to extend amortizations, especially on uh, insured CMHC mortgages from 25 years to 40 years. It adds nothing to debt, uh, to, to the debt up front, adds absolutely nothing, just makes it more affordable. And I would even suggest possibly targeting it to first time buyers because I'm not out for making rich people richer. Uh, they've already got the money, they've already owned property, but let, let's try and help those folks in the affordable housing area who are, are, as you say, trying to get into the market. And that would be an easy way. There's a huge difference between what you can qualify for a 25-year uh, payback period over a 40-year payback period. And we've already done it. CMHC did that uh, 15 years ago. And the government stopped it. Right, because of risk. And you know what the risk is? Zero. You know, they, they, they their uh, default rate was, was negligible, next to nothing, literally. And they're collecting huge insurance premiums to, to do this. We have two uh, private insurers in Canada, Canada Guarantee and Genworth. They're, I'm sure that if the government looked uh, to be open to it, they'd be more than happy to uh, insure those mortgages. We don't need CMHC necessarily to take it at the public risk. Lou Periano, uh, always a pleasure, Lou, to get your perspective on this thing and, and the outside-the-box thinking. Uh, stay with us. These things are going to be very fluctuating over the next couple of weeks, months, I guess, and uh, we always want to get your input into that. But thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. Pleasure was entirely mine. Thank you, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.